This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, the H-E-L-P. That's right. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, or maybe you're, you're experiencing some burnout, go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo, and you'll enjoy 10% off your first month. Uh, and if you're like, what is BetterHelp? Tell me more. Uh, they will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. That's right. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. BetterHelp is not the right solution for you if you have thoughts of hurting yourself or hurting others. Um, But they do offer a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. Uh, The service is available for clients worldwide. That's the beauty of it, worldwide, wherever you are. Australia, Budapest, Iran, uh, Russia, they have uh, available therapists in your area. And what's really cool is you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can send and schedule weekly video or phone sessions. That's right. You don't have to ever sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free, free to change counselors if needed. How dope is that? It's like if you get a car, you don't like it after a few weeks, you can swap it for free. How cool. Um, It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and Financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo and join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health today and get that 10% off your first month. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Marcos Trinidad. Oh, he's an Army veteran and host of the Human Nature Podcast. Today we discuss finding your joy, spiritual connections, moving from caution to curiosity, the joy of bird watching, discovering what we're all capable of, and finding purpose in our compulsions. We talk about so much more. Plus, I really love our discussion on nonviolent communication. Let's jump into the episode with Marcos Trinidad. Going back and thinking, man, I shouldn't have said that. That's like 99% of what I say. <laughs> <laughs> I think the good, the good piece is like, you know, I don't, I don't dwell on it. Right. So um, I say it and yeah, I said it. I'm accountable. <laughs> so we're good, man. How do you now, let me ask you this, uh, you know, cause you said you don't dwell on things. You, 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 you hold yourself accountable. Um, how do you, how do you let things go? It's that's a great question. I think a lot of it comes with um, experience of not letting go, and and what that does to me, and and where it takes me. And I've had a lot of experience of just dwelling on things, and I am grateful. Uh, that I've had a lot of uh, meditation practice and I've been able to to really study 
um, you know, a lot of the philosophy that goes behind the particular uh, meditation that I do. And um, part of the, the understanding of, of impermanence and us having a cycle that we can constantly play over and over again, um, which is, which can be that dwelling that I also have the ability to break. And the more that I step out of these, these patterns, uh, the, the stronger, the reconnecting of, of new, new habits becomes. So the, the dwelling is, is, is less consistent. Um, and man, it's just a practice. It's just a practice of, of doing it, doing it again. I still get pulled into it. <laughs> and then what ends up happening at that point, it's just like, say I, I do something and I dwell on it and I'm like, oh man, I should have done this. And then I get that thinking of, oh man, like I know better than this. I've done this before. Like, and then I start beating myself up about like, I should have known better, <laughs> like to dwell on it. And then that starts a whole nother like pattern. And um, for me, the, the ability to wake up or just the privilege to wake up in the morning, start another day or each moment, if I have to take it moment by moment, the ability to say, you know what? I'm going to change now. I'm going to shift this now. As soon as I catch it, I'm going to change this now because that I learned through meditation and focusing on the breath. And when you're deep in meditation, when I hear people, I'm like, oh yeah, I was deep in meditation. Usually for me, that means, man, I was deep in thinking. I was deep in thoughts, which for me is not my purpose of meditation. That was like, I'm sitting there and I'm physically there, but the mind is, is, is running. And then when I catch myself, I'm like, oh, wow, I was, I was carried away with that thought. I could bring myself back to the breath. And then I focus on the breath and then get back into that meditation, meditative state, which I'm trying to accomplish. That's what has taught me to break those patterns of, of, of the dwelling and, and, and getting attached to that. It's powerful in terms of coming back to the breath and breaking the meditation and not beating yourself up over the thoughts that you're having. Right. Because a lot of times, you know, I relate where I'm, I'm beating myself up over something I said or did. And then I realize, Oh, I don't have to beat myself up. Like that's not productive. That's not helpful. It's actually letting me off the hook because when I'm beating myself up, I'm not being reflective and I'm not thinking about how I can, one, interrupt that pattern and two, how do I correct it, right? Like when you're in class, your teacher doesn't beat you up, hopefully, for coming up with the wrong answer. <laughs> she asks you, how did you come up with that answer? How did you arrive there? And then you, you, you take steps from there. But you brought up something beautiful that the the idea of impermanence, that, that's a word that I don't really hear a lot of. And, and, and in cognitive behavioral therapy, one of the things they talk about is how nothing is permanent. So 
you know, whether you're uh, are feeling depressed or upset or even happy and joyous, uh, no state is permanent. Can you tell me more mm. about uh, what impermanence means for you? Sure. Um, yeah, man, it's 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 one of those things that I have um, fortunately been able to 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 experience um, often and and being able to um, I guess contemplate is what I was going to say and, and 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 I use contemplate because it's a there's a difference between contemplating impermanence and then dwelling on it. <laughs> And, and for a while, when I was introduced to this idea of impermanence that later became a philosophy or, or, or just a belief, um, I'm like, no, man, like, I'm, I'm going to be around forever. My family is going to be around forever. The homies are going to be around forever. This person is going to be around forever, you know, in, in whatever relationship I'm having is going to be around forever. And then quickly realizing that, nope, nope, it's not. And um, for me, really understanding or what I believe is the understanding for me is, is that um, there are some things in life that we have no control over. People, places, and things. And for a long time, I really didn't understand how that that plays out in our lives and in in, in my life particular until I started having um, people in my in my life pass away. And understanding that, wow, you know what, folks are really not going to be here forever. I'm not going to be here forever. And, and what are these experiences or memories that I'm going to have um, of these interactions that I get to, to have with folks or spaces? And when I mean by spaces, I'm getting to nature. And, and which really where, where nature is where, where I think I find all teachings and that impermanence when it plays out in nature, is raw. I mean, there's no judgment there. Nature is going to happen. And there's nothing we can do to prevent it as much as we can. Even me sitting in, in, in this room with the carpet and, and trying to control the audio, right? And trying to control the sound. If the neighbor turns on uh, or, or if the neighbor is, is, is loud, I could possibly be able to, to prevent that audio coming in. But just as we were able to see yesterday with the, with our, our thunderstorms, if nature wanted, nature's going to come through. Nature is going to have this, this, uh, this presence. So as nature changes, it's the thing that we can connect to every day that is going to teach us impermanence. When, when we jumped on, you talked about how hot it is. Regardless of your perception on how hot 
it is, that perception is not going to change. The fact that the sun is going to come out (laughs) and we're going to experience it. Tomorrow, it may be a little different. So for me, I, I look at those examples and I try to connect as much as I can on a daily, just so I can, I can continue to practice how, how I, I, I receive these teachings. Because for me, that, that idea of impermanence is also uh, very uh, closely related to what I call my motto of remaining teachable. Because if I think I'm around forever, I'm going to stop learning. And I'm, and I'm here to learn. Man, I, I, I love that. You, you know, I've had so many people on a podcast talk about how being in nature um, imbues that that idea of like there's no judgment, there's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no judge, there's no jury out there. It's all equal. And that's one of the things I love about being in nature. Also, when you think about your your childhood, when you think about your your history, what was there were there moments of judgment for you growing up oh man always <laughs> man i i grew up in the in in the hood i grew up in the barrio and it was in the 80s at the peak of of uh some of the, some of the the really intense gang violence in los angeles so it was a very different experience i, I and i say different in comparative or, or comparing that to, to my current reality and, and, and how I choose to, or uh, how I'm able to raise my children. And that, and that's the, like the thing that is real for me. Right. So growing up, we had a lot of um, experiences, or at least I, I was able to experience a lot of struggle and that that's just being being a person of color, growing up in Los Angeles, growing up through through the uprising in in Watts, the the ninety two riots, living through that, having uh, friends that were were in gangs, that were out of gangs, that were trying to survive, um, and also being in an urban area, in a space that may have not been the most healthy. And I mean that with with access to food, access to clean water, clean air, all these things. In that moment, I didn't realize any of this. In that moment, I never felt that I was lacking. I never felt that I was missing all this stuff. This was all retrospect as, a, as an adult thinking back, like, man, I made it through that. <laughs> like, man, <laughs> like we were experiencing these things and not knowing that we were going against the grain or that we were just surviving, you know, barely surviving. This was us like living life. So now as I think back and, and reflect on childhood, like those moments when, when my family struggled, you know, with 
with pain bills or uh, uh, healthy food options. Like it wasn't about like, wow, we're, we're really in a tough place this, this month. It was just like, well, you know what, this is what we eat. We, you know, hot dogs with the tortilla <laughs> and, you, and you warm that up, <laughs> you know, back then it was like, we were eating spam sandwiches, spam and eggs. Now, now we look at that, man, you go to some of these food trucks selling, you know, spam and rice and charging 10 bucks. <laughs> so when we look at this judgment or non-judgment, it's how do we choose to, to react now that we're adults and reflect back on our childhood. And I, I used to catch myself feeling really sad and down about my childhood. But in that moment, I, I wasn't tripping in the same way. Like in that moment, I was happy to be a child. I was happy to be with friends. I found joy in eating those meals with family. It wasn't until an adult placing judgment on those experiences because I felt that I was doing without. And it was society telling me, oh, you're an at-risk youth. Oh, you have all these things that, that, they, they, you need to fix. Oh, you are now uh, in a space that, that needs to be corrected. And going through that period has allowed me to, to, to reflect in a very different way where I, I'm, I'm able to, um, to bring in this, this uh, idea of non-judgment and, and place it. And you know what? When I was a kid, man, I was having a good time. And I wasn't thinking, like, I didn't get up and, and think like, well, let, let me go walk these streets and, 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 and you know, find my friends and, and, and you know, have, have these urban experiences in the hot sun. <laughs> no, it was like, man, I couldn't wait to get up in the morning, call up the homies, or just... Back then, we just show up on the front door, knocking on the door or yelling from the street, hey, <laughs> you know, and come out. Then you go to the next house. <laughs> so I think when we think of judgment as, as adults and reflect on that, I think we're being pretty harsh on ourselves. I don't want to take away from anyone's experience where they, they did experience harm and trauma. But for me, what I initially characterized as trauma and harm was really, or is now being interpreted as experiences with the chance of growth. And, and that has taken a lot for me as an adult, like, or, you know, just to get to that space. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of people go to a bar or a nightclub um, as a space for non-judgment, right? It's like you go in a bar, it's dark, the music's loud, so it's like you're numbing all your senses, and it's like we're all we're all drinking, we're all getting drunk, so no no one can judge in here. We can all you know 
reduce ourselves to our lowest common denominator and not feel judged. But, you know, what I love about your message is it's about, uh, that, about also realizing that nature is a place for non-judgment. How did you um, make that part of your mission or your purpose to get other people into nature? Is this something that your parents espoused? Or is this something that you stumbled on through a mentor by accident? No, Matt, like, I'm glad you brought that up because it it was through experience. I was looking for that non-judgment in those places too. <laughs> so, you know, hit, hitting up the bars and the clubs and not finding it. <laughs> Where else are you going to um, check? So, so just consistently on, on, on the search. Um, when I realized, when I realized that, that nature was, was something to be had, uh, I was in the military and there was, uh, um, a number of, of, of times that I was, you know, had to go through a, a, a certain amount of training. I mean, boot camp, and then you go out to, to some extended job training. And for me, uh, joining the military at 17 was a big deal. Like I couldn't even sign myself up for the military. I had to have both of my parents sign their kid away, their baby away. Next thing you know, Fort Knox, Kentucky, um, First time away from home, first time out of Los Angeles, first time, you know, anyone from from my family uh, and, and at this generation had volunteered to join the military. So so there was a lot. Um, but getting into that experience, also really not understanding. Man, have you talked to 17-year-olds lately? I can't believe I joined the military <laughs> at 17, you know, um, but it, it was a different, a different time. And, and so getting, getting to a space, I remember uh, talking to the recruiter. I want a job that will give me time to go to school while I'm in the military. I want to go to Europe and I also want a, a non-combat job. And uh, the recruiter saying, all right, we got you. We got the perfect job for you. So then rolling out to, to Fort Knox, Kentucky and being in the woods for the first time and getting to a space where I started feeling different seasons. You know, I, I, I showed up in summer. The biggest guy I ever seen in my life walks in the room. He was our, our, our first sergeant. And looks around the room and addressing 300 new troops and is walking around and saying, you guys have signed up to be 19 Delta Cavalry Scouts, the one of the most dangerous jobs United States Army has to offer. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, wait, hold up. You know, I signed up for a non-combat job. So, you know, I raised up my hand. I'm like, oh, there must be a mistake. You know, I signed up for a non-combat job and then having about five drill sergeants in my face telling me all what they were going to do. 
and I could just sit. I was there, you know, and, and it was almost like you could just see the mouse running. And I'm thinking back in my in, in my in my head, talking to the drills or talking to our, the recruiter and he's saying, Trinidad, whatever you do, just fly under the radar. Like you don't want to make a name for yourself. Just fly under the radar. And I'm sitting there thinking like, man, I'm, I, I jacked that up because it was 15 seconds into the first day. And everyone knew who Trinidad was. And just having that amount of pressure and stress. And it pretty much was <clears throat> my experience of boot camp. I mean, they broke me down. When I started to rebuild myself was when I was out in nature and sitting in a foxhole or hiking <clears throat> we we used to call it a uh, uh, what well, was ruck marching but it can be interpreted as as hiking i mean we had boots on and and carrying all our gear but not being able to chit chat or talk or or do anything just be in that space i didn't know what was happening at the time but as i was being broken down by the by the training and they were rebuilding me the experience in nature was healing me and i didn't really understand how that was happening how it was working and eventually going through boot camp being very comfortable being in the woods they pretty much trained me to a point where I could not like get lost in, in, in the wilderness. As long as I had a map and compass, I, I could not get lost. So there was a, a level of comfort there. So when they shipped me out to, to Germany, they did give me Europe out of the three things I asked for. Um, Southern Germany, having this experience, there were moments just going through some training and being in the woods and then finding that peace. And then understanding that wow this is this is when i i have this spiritual connection not really knowing at that moment that it was a spiritual connection not knowing at that moment that i was being healed and that i was open to receiving that healing those were the moments that i would come back to later as an adult understanding that nature is one way that we can reconnect, not just to each other as, as, as people, but reconnect to the land as, as our ancestors have, have done and, and had that relationship. So um, coming out to, you know, after living out in, in, in Europe for, for, for some time, coming back to the United States and, and figuring out, you know, okay, what am I going to do for work? Um, getting to a point where, where I was able to, to start studying, you know, geology and anthropology and, and these things that were these, these studies that were putting me out in back out into nature is when I really made the connection that these all, all of this was happening. And that if I could create opportunities 
that would put other people in that situation and, and provide those experiences that I wouldn't have to be the camp counselor. I just had to make the introduction. Nature would do the rest. And that's where, where you know, the real healing started because not only was I in a space that I can heal myself from, from whatever it was that needed healing, when you realize that you're opening doors or providing uh, experiences for other people to do that, there, there's a whole nother world that, that brings that brings healing onto it. And man, I know you know what I'm talking about when 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 you're able to help people and and how how it helps us in that in that in that uh, same time. Absolutely. One of the things that stand out about what you said, because you're talking about connection and healing and how there were 300, you know, 17, 18 year old boys on the cusp of becoming men. But still, you know, we know the the male brain doesn't really fully develop (laughs) until 25. So it's still a long way off. How what were some of the things you remembered and still to this day employ um, in terms of people from such uh, a range of backgrounds and energy connecting? How, how did, how did they get you all to connect and bond? Or did you feel like you weren't able to bond and connect with the the three, uh, 300 other um, military men? or people um man that's deep that's deep (laughs) because um i ran the range of it all you know there were folks that i was able to connect with and then there were folks that that it did not happen and and the thing about the military um and that training and that situation in those circumstances, it's some of the most valuable experiences that a person can go through. And, and this is this is this, this is the the difficulty in, in trying to explain it because I can't fully explain what goes on because there are no words to really to hit what you're learning. But in those experiences, you learn just how cruel and how horrible people can get. You learn what we are all capable of. Just that, that, that really dark, dark space. And at the same time, you learn how amazing and and honorable and just beautiful people can be. And so for that experience to really happen for me at such a young age is is what what I believe to be um, a a huge part of, of how I got to where where I am and 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 just my view on life because um you know 
when we are put in really stressful places or put in really stressful, scary situations, we are able to see what we are capable of and what our potential is. And sometimes we don't know which, which way we're going. Are we going to be that really horrible person? Or are we going to be that really honorable person? Because we have the, the, the capabilities and the abilities to, to, to be all of that. So for me, um, I think the relationships that I was able to build uh, based off of being in a really scary place, in a really, uh, uh, at times, lonely place, allowed me to understand that, that when I set intention to, to be open to receive help and, and, and also uh, the, the learn, like the teachings, the, the learnings, then, then, then that interaction can happen. And the more I train myself and practice being that person that I want to be, the easier it's going to be in those really stressful situations. So that connection is, is getting stronger. And there's, there's all sorts of medical explanations of how that works. And, and, and it's the reason why the military trains so much, because you get that muscle memory. You also get that brain memory, those connections. You start to fill those connections. And I think for me, understanding and going through that now, back then, I'm, I was telling you, I'm a 17-year-old. You hit it. Our, our brains don't fully develop until way later. And, and by that time, there were a lot of substances that were keeping my brain from developing fully. <laughs> so now as an adult and having these, these interactions, um, I'm able to choose which interactions I favor because of the, the, the effect and in, how in how they play out in my life and in and, and just where I want to I want to be as as a, a person in this society I have listeners who are listening from all over the world in Iran in Portugal China Budapest Africa all over and so many people are struggling with drug addiction and you've mentioned uh, I, I, I think twice now you know substances could you share, are you, are you willing to share what those substances were so that the listeners can hear that they're not alone and what they're struggling with? And then they also can hear of someone who was struggling with it. And I'm assuming now you're not struggling with those same substances currently. Yeah, for sure. I, I am definitely willing to, to share. So um, alcohol was, was a big part of my life. I mean, 17 years old in Germany, man, I, I learned how to, how to drink with the, with the greats <laughs> and, and that was the good beer. So if, if you have folks that are listening out in Germany, you know, nothing can touch that. <laughs> um, and getting to a space that, that, or getting to a space where, where the substance was no longer something that I was using, uh, 
but something that was addicting and 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 changing behavior and and just numbing uh, and and separating any connections that I did have with people or uh, uh, motivation in 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 doing things um, was something that I had to to realize. And then of course you know. Back then it wasn't legal, but it's legal now, you know, uh, uh, marijuana, weed, all that stuff growing up in L.A. and, you know, messing around with 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 the wide uh, variety of 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 things. But for me, the the real um, struggle was. Alcohol, because with that, all bets were off. You know, after that first drink. It didn't matter what was next, right? <laughs> so um, understanding that I was powerless over that that first drink or after that first drink um, is is what allowed me to 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 start setting intention on where I wanted to take my life and how I wanted to live my life. And now me being twelve years sober, it has drastically changed. So it's not that I don't struggle with alcohol. I don't struggle with the fact that I wanna be a better person. And when I was drinking or using any other substance, I didn't care. I didn't care whether I was a good person or not. It just wasn't a thing I thought about. It wasn't until I felt really lonely and and the uncertainty and 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 just lack of motivation and wanting to have this spiritual connection and 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 this understanding that got me to a point that I was scared and willing to do whatever it it, it would take to to change that up. And, and the, again, coming back to this idea of impermanence, you know, and my beliefs, I needed to, to, to do something. I, I couldn't just get to a point where I gave up and not try to, to, to figure out uh, um, not just a solution, a treatment, but a new way of life. And that's what what got me to this this space now. Talk to me about you said you know you got to a place where you were scared, and and I I, for at least for myself I know, and for so many people, that's something that a lot of us, especially as adults, uh, we don't cop to. We don't admit that of scared. That's something that children are. Children get scared. Uh, kids get scared. Adults, you know, we got to be tough. We got to have grit, be resilient. Um, but to, to admit that we're scared, that, that we are fearful of, talk to me more about what you what you were scared of and, and what you're now scared of. Yeah, I mean, it's just, just like you were saying, it's just as an adult, you know, we don't get scared. I've never seen my parents scared. They never showed any fear. You know, they always had all the answers. And I think 
as parents and as adults, we put on that front. And I don't know if that is what we should be doing for our children. And with, with me, you know, getting to a place uh, where I was scared, it was really about not having the answers, understanding that, man, here I'm an adult. I just, you know, accomplished the, the, the first real goal I had set for myself as a young adult, which was join the military, get some college money, uh, travel the world, you know, do all these great things. And then here I am at, you know, 22, 23, not knowing what to do with my life, which tell me which 22, 23 year old does know what to do with their life, right? But also feeling this sense that, that I didn't have any answers and, and looking for um, some spirituality, uh, looking for a connection, looking for something that was greater than myself and not being able to find it. That's what got me to a place that, that, okay, well, well, what can I find? Can I find it in that drink? Can I find it in that, in that substance? Can I find it in, in, in whatever these compulsive behaviors are? And so when you're constantly looking for something and not finding it, that's scary, man. <laughs> and, and so getting to uh, a place that, um, was was dark because I was not only f not finding what I was looking for. One, I didn't even know what I was looking for. Like, how are you going to find something you don't know that you're looking for? And then two, not being able to make any real connections with anyone else because of it. And, and separating myself from from any meaningful relationships or or connections that I that I had and not really understanding how to um, to process that because it wasn't laid out for me. No one said, hey, this is how you deal with this. Like, oh, you're feeling sad. Here's some things you can do. And then fresh fresh off of, of, of um, a military uh, uh, term, man, we don't give up. We don't show weakness. <laughs> you know, that, that was training that was very real. You get whatever it is you need to, to do, you get it done. And that's where I think I got to a point that was really scary for me uh, in, in being able to... Um, to find anything that was solid, like to find uh, something that I can I can rest on, that I can uh, um, take as 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 a sign that there was something greater than myself, and bringing it back to nature. When I was in nature, those were the moments that I was able to feel that I was not alone understanding that world the world was going to spin with or without me birds were going to sing bugs were going to bug you know the wind was going to blow and understanding that that there is like a purpose to 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 all of this 
And now just finding that motivation that I had to, to see what my purpose was in that whole scheme of things. Yeah, you know, you're, how long you been married, Marcus? Uh, going on, man, about 16 years I've been with my partner. So 16 years and you have two, two children, a boy and a girl. Yep. How, you know, you talked about parents presenting as perfect. How do you correct for errors with your children? Uh, and let me restate that another way. I used to work in a group home and there'd be times where I, I might say something or I might punish a kid for something. And, and then I look back and, I, and I'd realize that I'd made a mistake and I need to apologize or make amends. How do you do that with your children? And how do you teach them to do that with each other? If at all, maybe you don't apologize. <laughs> you just like, they'll figure it out. Yeah. Man, thank you for that question because it, it, and I, that's what I need to hear. I need to hear, how do I apologize to my children? because I can't apologize to them enough. It's just, uh, I need to apologize for things that I'm going to do in the future. Like that's, that, that, that's really, you know, if we're being real with it, if we're having that real talk, I need to apologize for all the times I'm going to goof up in the future because it's going to happen. I think now I'm comfortable with making those mistakes and being that fool. I'm comfortable with opening myself up and not having to project this machismo way of doing things. You know, the kids know that I was in the military. They know that the job that I was doing is, 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 a, is a job that, that folks are very uh, proud of. You know, if you're a scout, you're a scout. If you if you've done recon, that, that, that's your thing. So there's, there's a lot of that that comes out. But what I make sure of that, that outshines that is that daddy is also capable of showing love. And daddy is also capable of learning. And for me, again, coming back to, to what am I doing today to remain teachable? When I'm wrong, promptly admit it. You know, those are things that I, I, I need to do because if I can apologize for doing something wrong or, you know what, hey, my bad, like I'm already like ready to yell at, 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 at the kid or, or, or come out with, with, with one of my wisecracks, but yet how am I modeling that behavior? Are these things that, that I value in, in our family? How am I modeling those things? And, and man, I'll tell you, when, when we first uh, um, had Paloma, and Paloma's my, my oldest, we, we wanted to revolutionize parenting, like everything. You know, we had the cloth diapers, you know, we're bringing it back. Uh, cloth diapers, we lived in a tiny home. We wanted to lower our carbon footprint. When, when the baby started eating solids, we didn't feed her anything. We didn't grow for her. I mean, it was taking it back. And then when I son came out, 
we're like, well, maybe we could just do organic. <laughs> and then changing that, but also changing how we parent, changing the, the idea that we had to scare our kids into behaving. So adopting these things that were completely foreign to us, like nonviolent communication. It's like, what's, what, what's that? You know, trying to explain that to my, to, to my family or, oh, we don't, we don't, we don't communicate like that. We we don't say, Hey, get down from that tree. You're going to fall. We say, Hey, be mindful of your footing because you want to make sure that you're avoiding, you know, any potential to, to fall. (laughs) So can you, I, I, I could, I could, I could feel like my listeners right now are just going crazy because (laughs) <laughs> Nonviolent communication is something that, uh, or I, I don't want to say going crazy, but they're just lit up right now as I am. It's not something that we hear of often. And so can you give me an example of, you, you kind of gave us an example of talking to your kids, but, and then can you give us an example uh, of, of nonviolent communication with your wife? Like what was a past example of you reframing something in a nonviolent uh, way, communicate, communicative way. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so nonviolent communication, uh, is, is a way of really tapping into, um, how we communicate coming from a place of love and trying to communicate with truth, with facts, without manipulating whoever we're communicating to, to behave the way that you want them to behave. And one clear example of that, at least for me growing up, was, you know, we always listen to our parents because, you know, who are we to question our our parents? (laughs) You know, you don't talk back. You don't ask questions after you're told to do something. You just make it happen. Parents would say, hey, come over here. Like, you see that man? That man's going to get you. Come over here. Just so we would be able to listen. And then so then we wonder why all these kids that that were lucky, we say, hey, you know, hi and wave. And then they're just looking at you with the side eye. But like, I think that's that man that that my mama told me about. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, is that the guy that's going to get me? Or like I was getting into when when we see kids playing because children are naturally curious. Like that's something that is a gift when we're born, that curiosity. As an adult, we learn to, to, to push curiosity to the side. Um, and then we start, you know, moving on, 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 on the side of caution. <laughs> but that the difference would be if you see a child playing, say they're jumping on a rock or climbing a tree, and you're scared that something might happen to them because we love our children so much and we don't want to be rushing to the emergency room, we would say something like, hey, get down, you're going to fall. Or be careful, that that's going to hurt you. And in reality, like, why do we think that? Because there's the potential of a children fall, you know, children falling or or something happening. But instead, we'll use that fear 
where we're already condemning it. We're already like, okay, this is what's going to happen. I'm using fear to control your decision because you're not going to want to fall. So you're going to listen to what I have to say. And then you're going to come over here and sit by me and I'm not going to have to worry about it. Or you can communicate in a way that is going to lay out options and uh, lay out an alternative narrative that is going to keep your child alert and also confident in being able to stay curious. And so if the kid or my, my child was, was climbing rocks, I would then get into to, to action and not be the lazy parent that just wants to control the kid and say, hey, you're going to fall, get over here. I'd step up and say, what can I do to support my child's curiosity? And then say, hey, be mindful. Make sure when you're putting your hands in, in areas, you know, you're, you're watching, you're, you're, you're doing this because there is the, the potential danger. And not using fear to control any of those uh, uh, decisions or, or behaviors that, that I ultimately want. And it was a shift in mind because I would communicate this way with our kids in front of family members. And they're like, why do you talk to the kid like that? Like, they don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> like, why do you talk to them? Like, they should just listen to what, what you're saying. And we were, uh, um, my partner and I, we, we had uh, uh, joined this co-op. It was a preschool that was all about being outdoors. It was all about nonviolent communication. It was all about finding an alternative way to raise your children in an urban environment. <laughs> and it was the best decision we had made as, as uh, first-time parents, uh, as young adults, uh, for our family. And, and it really challenged us to, to go beyond us just reliving that generational uh, trauma of, of being, being told what to do based off of fear. Um, so for us, you know, it gets to that point now today, like I still see that old trauma coming out because then it's, you know, it's a lot of work, man. It's a lot of work to have to go into that narrative. And there are moments when you're doing something, you're like, you know what, because I said so. <laughs> and, and you get back to that. Or if you do this, then this is going to happen. How do you avoid that? And it's just like, man, I'm not trying to get down to your level. And you, you make eye and I like, all the, all the bending down and up and down squatting I was doing and just like getting down to your level. I'm glad my kids are getting older because they're about my height. So now I only have to, you know, crouch a little. But you think about these things and how we communicate to children and each other. And man, that's, that's, that's cruel. Like the way we talk down at children and, 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 you know, us acknowledging that violence. So now when it gets to my, my partner and how we communicate to each other, like there's, there's those periods where we were going through where I'm like, well, I hear what you're saying. Well, I feel this way. And it's just like, hold up. Don't use that shit with me. Don't use that nonviolence with me. We're going to have an argument. And this 
is going to potentially be violent language. <laughs> so it's also understanding, like, how do we break these habits, not just with how we communicate with, with children, with our children, but how do we communicate with each other um, when we're not trying to, to get something out of it? <laughs> Well, and I'm glad that you showed both sides of that spectrum, because I think a lot of times when we learn skills and, and, and techniques in terms of how to communicate with nonviolence or, you know, or we learn like a meditation practice or whatever, we feel like we always have to stick to the script. And as you shared, we have to leave space to make a mess. We have to leave space to just let it fly out however it flies out and hope that we can clean up the mess later. Um, and so there, there are times where he goes, when you do this, I feel that. And then there are times where it's just do it. Cause I said to do it, you know, it, it's like, you know, if you're in an emergency situation, you got some active shooter uh, thing going down. That's not the time to, you know, express yourself in a very loving and kind manner. It's like, you know, run this way, go grab that, you know, uh, houses on fire. There, there, there are times where we have to be direct, uh, from a place of love. Uh, and then there are other times where, uh, we can connect from a place of love. Mm. Um, now Marcos Trinidad, I know you're a big bird watcher. What, what I've heard, of, I've, I've seen, uh, bird watchers in movies and TV shows. What, what are you watching for? I understand people watching. <laughs> what, what are you looking at when you're, when you're looking at birds? What are you watching for? Right, man, I'm just, like I said, I'm looking for connection um, and uh, observing behavior. I, I think for, for me, as, as I watch birds, I have learned that birds are here to tell us a story. If we're willing to listen. They got these beautiful songs, man. Always singing. Sometimes they're, they're singing when we're trying to get some sleep. I, I've been re recently hearing, hearing folks in the urban environment talking about these mockingbirds uh, getting going real early, earlier than usual, around 3 a.m. or all night. <laughs> but um, for me, it, it's really a moment to, to find out um, where where I am mentally, emotionally, spiritually, because I could look at a bird one morning and see nothing. And those are the days that I'm rushing. Those are the days that I'm not taking care of myself. Those are the days I, I just drink coffee all morning and I don't have breakfast. <laughs> you know, those are the days that I have a million things to do. Then there's the days that I get a look through binoculars or not even look through binoculars. I can just watch behavior. I can watch interaction. I can watch a relationship that birds have with the environment that now we're bringing in this non-judgment that are just being. Birds are the one wild animal that we can have an interaction with every day. I mean, you literally have to go out of your way to not have an interaction. I mean, close up your windows, you know, make sure you're not looking out the window because you'll see a bird flying by. What are they telling us? 
the cool thing about birds is that they could tell us the health of our communities when we're listening, when we get to, to learn something about birds. If you're seeing only pigeons or only gulls in your, in your neighborhood, that's telling you something. And it's not dogging on pigeons or, or, or those, those particular birds. It's based off of what their behaviors are. They're not that scared of humans. So they, they'll be around us. They can live off of our trash. They're, they're over there at, at In-N-Out where I am. And then they're also chilling in the park. If you see, say, a spotted tohi, or if you see, you know, a wren tit or one of these other birds that have a specialized diet that only eat a particular type of seed, that is telling you that that plant or that tree needs to exist in, in your neighborhood. And if that plant or tree exists in your neighborhood, that's telling you that the soil needs to be healthy enough to sustain that plant or tree. So you start to learn that there's something bigger there. Migratory birds coming through. We, we can even get down to the science of climate change and all these things. Um, but for me, there is just this beauty that, that birds um, are able to share. And they're so willing to share that beauty with us that it allows me and motivates me to share some of that beauty that I may have. I love that. Uh, you know, when I played college football, every day um, as practice was about to start, our coach, um, not Shadell, gosh, I forget his name, but he said, the sunshine and birds are singing. Beautiful day for football. And to this day, when I go outside, I have that uh, on repeat in my brain. Sunshine and birds are singing. It's a beautiful day for football. Um, now, you're the host, to wrap up here, Marcos, uh, you're the host of Human Nature Podcast. Uh, what, what's your goal with that? What's your mission with the Human Nature Podcast? So what we wanted to accomplish with, with human nature is to show that humans and nature are not separate. We are a part of nature. And we have these beautiful examples of nature and, and us coexisting with an urban environment, an urban area, and, and nature. And so with the podcast, we, we highlight stories and we tell these, these stories of nature existing against all odds. We, we have a, a number of episodes that focus on particular species of plants or trees or um, in, in, in one episode, a butterfly, the, the Palos Verdes blue butterfly, which happens to be the rarest butterfly in the world, uh, existing right in our backyards. So um, the goal is really to, to, to put us in a space where we can open ourselves up to observation. And even though we have very busy lives in the city, even though we're in the, in the, in the hustle of, of city life, we can have a natural experience when we open ourselves up to that. Marcos Trinidad, last question. I ask this of all my guests because I always imagine 
there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Marcos? You're not alone. You're not alone. And the world is and can be better with you in it. Reach out. Thank you so much, Marcos. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to reach out, seeking help, walking out in the woods, listening to the birds. Share your pain with the birds out there. Call (laughs) 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALKS or any of the international phone numbers that are listed in each and every single one of the show notes. If you can't call, you can text. You can message. There are group chats. There are Facebook groups. There's online communities. There is help for you somewhere. If you are financially struggling, there are services uh, also listed in the show notes that can help you uh, connect and get financial assistance for for mental health. Uh, You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Marcos. Thank you for having me.